0: Huh? <laughs> now. As
1: we come to the end of the sitting, let's take a few moments to bring into the group those we are holding in our hearts, perhaps for some special joy or maybe a particular challenge. We bring them into the group by speaking their name and a short statement about the situation. And When we're all assembled, we'll end our sitting. We'll have a little break, and I'll ring the bell at 10, or at 11. I'll ring the bell at at, uh, 11. We've got a a break. I can't tell how loud it is, so. Please. Oh, announcements. Announcements. 40
2: chairs Uh, when we're done instead of taking all the chairs back maybe if the first three rows could remain and the rest go back and then we try to put them in a circle anyone who could help that would really be useful thank you
1: Are there any other announcements that uh, didn't get a chance to be announced? (laughs) It can't be an announcement if they're not announced, right? (laughs) Do I do? I do. It's been a pretty intense time. You know it's intense when when the wonderfulness of our national news is, uh, you know background noise to what's going on locally. And so I know what you're thinking. You're thinking I need a PowerPoint slide. <laughs> right, I know that. So I'm I'm here to please. Well uh, we'll go over this in a in a couple minutes. Um and walk our way through it. But I wanted to talk uh about the middle path today because the middle path is what the Buddha declared is first in the in the uh, what's come to be known as the first sermon the Buddha's announcement was that he'd found the middle path between uh, attraction and aversion between uh, desire and ill will you know, between asceticism and indulgence, and I think. You know, just for me anyway. The, the um, this thing, there we go. For me anyway, the middle path is is uh, an important focus of uh, my practice. So I I want to share some of that. Um, the middle path is, he says, the eightfold path. Um, And I think a lot of us are familiar with the Eightfold Path. We know it as the fourth element of the Four Noble Truths. And so I want to talk a little bit about how that, what it means for that to be middle or even a path um, and how that applies to our practice. Um, Let me say something about path, the path of you know the the it's the path there it's a metaphor, and it can be there's there's hidden assumptions just in talking about a path, so if we think about a path, a path is someplace somebody an animal people have gone before it's worn away it's easier to travel uh, you know there are things about a path, but often we think of the path as a path to somewhere i mean a path is therefore whatever reason, but we think of it as a path to somewhere. In some teachings I've heard, um, the path to the Grand Canyon is not the same as the Grand Canyon. And the path to nirvana is not the same as nirvana. You know, the path to home ownership is not the same as homeownership. <laughs> you know. The idea here is that the goal is at the end. And the path becomes well, let's just get along, you know. Hurry along! So there's that kind of assumptions, and the path is always, you know, buried in metaphor. Are all all kinds of um, assumptions. I was thinking about the metaphor of the uh, the raft. You guys know what the metaphor of the raft? The Buddha says we're on this side of a great water, and on the other side is freedom and, and enlightenment. I guess, and the idea, you know, the the person on the on the shore builds a raft and paddles across to the other side Uh, you know and that that makes it a destination but a path doesn't need to be like that there are other other kinds of path you can have a path that circles a stupa or a sacred mountain and then the idea is to just get on the path and what tread the path you know and the idea is staying on the path is what's important. There is no destination other than the path. And I think of the Eightfold Path in this way. I mean, you could have another kind of a path. You could have the path on a treadmill. It's a path of sorts. You know, or on a video game. Um, but the idea here is, with the Eightfold Path, is that the path, that living the Eightfold Path, Um, is what's important, not any destination. Uh, It's the staying on the path and cultivating the path. And to understand the the path, it's important to understand its place in the the Buddhist formulation of the four truths. The Buddha had an insight into the nature of uh, our dissatisfaction and suffering in life. And it was a Deep enough insight that we 're still sitting around talking about it twenty five hundred years later, trying to figure it out and he left he tried to articulate that insight uh, in a way that would enable others to uh, see what he saw and be free as he was free and He articulated his insight in terms of this this metaphor of the four the four truths. The four um, labeling it the four truths seems now to contemporary scholarship to have been a label that was not not the Buddha's. It was added a little bit later. Um, I'll call it the four truths on the on the the uh, the PowerPoint slide, and I know the print is small, but it's supposed to be up on a wall. (laughs) Um, I label it as the four teachings. Sometimes Stephen Bachelor thinks of it as the four tasks. But it's his way of articulating the insight in a way that enables us to follow. So I'm going to just sort of walk through this slowly. These four columns here are, are represent the the four teachings, the four truths. The yellow boxes include the actual text. It's Tan Jeff's translation of the text from the... Um, the first sermon to to to, to describe the uh, the nature of these experiences, and the tasks are listed at the bottom that the Buddha uh, specified went with each of these insights, each of these realizations, so the first truth, the first teaching, the experience of dukkha. The word dukkha is a is a word that's pretty hard to translate. It pretty much means everything that is uh, that we that's unpleasant, that's painful, that's hard to bear. Uh, the disat, what the parts of our life, parts of life that are unsatisfactory or suffering. Um, and the the way it's 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 he's, it or the way it's recorded. I mean, there wasn't a CNN camera there recording it live, but the way it's, he, it's presented in the text is this way. The noble truth of dukkha. Birth, aging, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, distress, lamentation, despair. Getting what you don't want, not getting what you want, and losing what you cherish. So it's not the definition of dukkha is or life is, or it's the noble truth of suffering is these these aspects of life. Nobody misses out on them um, in in prison where i where i I teach frequently uh, in situations in mental health settings where Buddhism is not i don't get to talk Buddhism. Um, but the Dharma can I can talk Dharma if I can <laughs> stay away from the Pali. Um, we just say shit happens. You know? And everybody gets that. You know. Stuff happens in life. That is and you know, nobody gets away with that. The Buddha's the first task, the Buddha said, is to understand dukkha. And just to skip ahead, right view in the fourth truth is also about understanding dukkha. And so the Buddha is trying to get us to understand what he's talking about, the dissatisfactions in life, how how they are, what makes them unsatisfactory, what makes them suffering. The second truth is interesting too. The second teaching. The origin of Dukkha, in, he uses the word tanha. And the word literally means, or is, literally translates as thirst. Which gives you a sense of, that. you know, when you're thirsty, it's, it's visceral. It's, it's, so tanha is talking about a disposition, a feeling in relation to our experience. He he identified this as a a subjective feeling. Sometimes it's translated as craving. And I'm not really happy with craving because it suggests that it's just a more severe kind of wanting. I really want it. I crave that chocolate. I think of Tanha a little bit differently. And I think of it in terms of uh, evolutionary biology. I've kind of... um, uh, Brought the Dharma into into our culture. We are designed by. You've come across the book by Robert Wright, "Why Buddhism Is True." It's a. It showed up on the New York Times bestseller list, and he's a. He writes about um, uh, the Dharma in terms of neuroscience neuro, uh, and and evolutionary biology, and it's pretty. It's pretty nice to reframe the insight in terms of Western Western sensibilities. We are, and, but he he does. He's got a, a cute idea. Of, you know, he's identified our creator as natural selection, which is no more abstract than anything else. Um, but we are designed with a very strong. Disposition to survive and reproduce the most powerful drives in us um, Bawa tanha which is Bawa is to become to be in the future to survive to to project ourselves forward and in terms of our evolutionary how we were guided by evolution. I mean, we didn't come with a manual. You know, we came with parents. And we're designed to prefer our experience pleasant because the experiences that we have that are pleasant generally, at least historically, uh, have been helpful for us as a species. Kamatanha. It's a disposition. Vibhava tanha, the disposition to suppress pain and unpleasantness. Pain and unpleasantness, are pain particularly, could be—it's a, a signal, a threat, perhaps, to the organism. Make it go away. So this is our disposition. They manifest. Tanha manifests as greed, wanting. And aversion, hatred, anger, fear, and as delusion. We'll talk a little bit about delusion in a a minute. So, this is our disposition. We want our experience pleasant, and we don't want it unpleasant. And we've got this incredibly powerful brain, which is designed to help us predict what's going to happen which makes us very successful. We're so successful as a species at surviving and reproducing we're overrunning the planet. So what happens when this disposition that is us, I mean, we're, we're all in the, we all got a piece of this, we're, what happens when this disposition encounters the list of things in that first truth? We There's um aversion <laughs> you know we don't like it we 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 don't want it we our desire our impulse it's a deep impulse make it go away so dukkha is what happens when you bring these two together us and unpleasant painful experience it's a it's a a conditioned arising the conditions that give rise to it are unpleasantness and our organism and we add an extra layer of unsatisfactoriness onto our experience so, you know, if we could, if we could dis- separate those, it um, might help us see how it, they blend together in some cases. It's very hard to tell. But let me give you an example. A friend of mine was at work on Friday afternoon and her boss stopped by her cubicle and said, first thing Monday, we've got to talk. How do you think her weekend went? <laughs> Dukkha. You know, and it didn't have to do with whatever was happening on the weekend. It was, you know, was in in her mind. Um, you know, you're sitting, well, we're all in chairs, but there was a time once <laughs> when we, when we, you know, you're sitting and your knee starts to hurt and what starts to happen? Your mind starts going, oh no. There's still 40 minutes left in this sitting. I'm never going to make it. Oh my gosh, my knee. I'll never be able to walk again. And then I won't be able to. And I'm going here and I won't be in. i have to see the... Da- you ever... You know, dukkha. We add on to what is unpleasant or painful in the first place. Another level. Buddha called it the second dart. Sometimes he talked about it as the second dart. You know about the second dart. He says the difference between an enlightened one, I don't think he used the word enlightened because there isn't that kind of a word, awakened, a, a realized one, and, and a run-of-the-mill person, is when there is a pain, physical or mental, both feel the physical or mental pain. But the arhat, the awakened one, doesn't feel the secondary pain, the mental pain. So, so dukkha is a composite experience. It's something, in the prison I say, we make things worse. Shit happens and we usually make things worse. You know? And everybody, I mean, that's, that's really the, you know, dukkha is the making it worse part. Because even the Buddha experienced pain and old age, um, and sickness, and he eventually died. He was unhappy when his two senior disciples uh, died, but he bore them without without making things worse. So the, the second the second truth. The task associated with it is to abandon tanha and its products, greed, hatred, and delusion. And um, shit happens, we usually make it worse, but we don't have to. That's the the third teaching. The remainderless, the text reads, the remainderless fading and cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that very tanha that's a pretty high bar if that tanha i mean the buddha was talking about he was he was ex, he was experiencing it subjectively when we talk when i frame it as as a phenomenon in uh, evolutionary biology as the way we are as as uh, beings it's 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 um, sort of a, a more objective framework um, but he's talking about abandoning Those dispositions towards uh, no more becoming, nothing further in this world. All the, you know, he talks about abandoning the dispositions towards survival and towards needing things to be pleasant and not wanting things to be unpleasant. It's a pretty tall order. But that's the cessation of dukkha. Because if you remove, if dukkha is, is dependently arisen based on unpleasantness and our response to it, our reactivity to it, if you take either side away, the dukkha disappears. Usually what we can do or the, the normal response is to try to remove the unpleasantness. Someone's hungry, feed them. If they're in pain, you know, try to... Uh, Remove the pain, help with the unpleasantness and the sadness. Sometimes all you can do is just be present, but the idea is to attenuate the actual uh, unpleasantness or pain. But it's also possible, the Buddha says, to abandon the tanha side, abandon the greed, not be sucked in by the greed and, and aversion that arise in us automatically. We're built this way. You know, Lady Gaga says, we're born this way. Hey, you know, that's how we are. Unpleasantness arises. We don't want it. I mean, we don't. You know, we don't get up in the morning and say, yesterday was too good. (laughs) You know, I I, I just haven't done that. (laughs) You know. So how do we do this? Well, the the idea is the... uh, the Eightfold Path. This is the path of cessation. It's the middle path. The Buddha called it the middle path. And I want to run through this and talk about how each of these elements are middle. What's so middle about the middle path? Because I think, you know, in some ways that gets, that gets overlooked. Buddha says this, the task associated with this is to cultivate the path. And cultivation is interesting. it's an interesting metaphor, because you don't actually make a seed grow. you create the conditions and it grows on its own. so you don't actually you know let go. you create the conditions and letting go happens. You know? so the 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 way of living without dukkha is to cultivate the Eightfold Path. So I'm just run through this really quick because probably not everybody here has all eight elements forward-backwards in all their various combinations at the tip of their tongue. And then we'll come back and, and, and go through them and talk about how each of them is middle because it's really instructive, for me anyway. Um, oh, we've got to start with the word Sama. All of these, some, if you look in the, the squares and the circles, samaditi, um, samavacha, right speech. We translate this at sama generally as right. And it's, there's lots of downsides for translating it as right. We like to use one word. We like to have, what does this word mean? Oh, it means this or it means that. Up on the, the drama up here, we call it, uh, it's wise. View wise intention, wise speech. Some people t- try to translate it as skillful or um, But I think what's important is, is the word "sama establishes its place in these, in these truths, in the Buddha's insight. He's saying that the elements on this path exist on this path to the extent that they uh, enable the abandonment of, of Tanha and its products. Right view is about what, it, what, it, what you have to know in order to not be sucked in by the, the bait of sense pleasures and um, uh, unpleasantness. What do you have to know? So samadhiti, R- right view or right understanding, right knowledge, right... Story, right narrative, right world. It's the cognitive map we have. Samasankapa, which is right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Right view is, in my view, which has got to be right. <laughs> Um, right view is the 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 heart of the matter. Um, in several places, the Buddha says the the understanding of right view. Everything follows from the understanding of right view. One with right view will have right intention, right speech, action, etc. And classically, right view, right understanding, is is taught as the understanding of anicca, dukkha, and anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, or suffering, and anatta, not-self, or emptiness, insubstantiality. So it's what you... And it's the cognitive side of... uh, our experience. So, if I ask you what's happening, you're going to come back with with a, an understanding, a view, a, per, a perception. What's this? A pen. Okay. So we have a, we have this uh, map of our experience, sort of like the GPS maps, you know. And then there's this little dot on there, which is us, and we sort of navigate around. It's a virtual us. It's a little dot. Um, so, it's the understanding that enables us to abandon greed, hatred, and delusion by understanding the impermanent nature of everything, the fact that nothing is capable of providing satisfaction, and that there isn't any substantial essence anywhere. permanence we all know everything's impermanent we sort of know it but then what's going on when we go oh no i broke my favorite mug i lost my you know we know it but viscerally when things are impermanent we go wait a minute i didn't i knew things were impermanent but not the bill of rights <laughs> But if everything is impermanent nothing can be satisfactory because even if you get what you want at some point it's going to change and it's downhill from there you know and that's you know one of the one of the core delusions that satisfaction is possible Re- just uh, recognizing that we are designed to always want more it's built into us you know, we solve one problem, we're ready for the next. You know, it's part of the way we're built. Any would-be ancestors who solved one problem and said, oh, good, I need a holiday, might not have lasted long enough to pass on their genes. And so we, we got the genes of everyone who was hustling. <laughs> so we got that always, always, always. It's not going to stop. It's built into us. And, to th- and yet, we still are motivated by the notion that we can make ourselves happy and satisfied if we pursue what we want. It just seems to be how we work. Oh, and avoiding what we don't want, making what we don't want go away. No. And then there's the notion of anatta which is confusing in so many ways. The idea is basically we're deluded about the nature of our experience. Now how would we know if we were deluded? I actually think that the opposite of right view, samadhiti, is not wrong view. It's delusion. It's not knowing how to live without suffering. And we don't know because we got it wrong about what suffering is. Understand dukkha. How would we know if we're deluded? It's a tricky one. You know? One 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 thought that I've had is <clears throat> excuse me if you think you're not <laughs> Dogen, who was a, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, who was a, the founder of the Soto Zen school, twelfth um, century, I think, Japan, said, "Enlightenment is nothing more than enlightenment about delusion, <laughs> and delusion is delusion about enlightenment." You know, we just, just to think that we have a clue. We do think we have a clue, but really we just barely know enough to be able to get around and keep ourselves going. What, 96% of the universe, 94% dark matter, dark energy? What is it, somewhere up there? It's, I mean, it's most of everything there is. We don't know any more about it than matter and energy not a lot. So we sort of, sort of don't know much about that. And then there's this whole creation. What do we know about this? Not a whole lot. We know how to get to the city. You know, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, we know how to fry an egg and, you know, be cordial to people. And we know how to get, you know, but not much more. And we think that the world is the way we see it. All these colors, anybody seeing colors? We think that these, that this world is colored this way, but the colors happen in our neurology. You know? It's the way our neurology translates photons and we think sugar is sweet. Sugar isn't sweet, it's just a pile of chemicals. Sweet is what happens in your mouth when those chemicals, you know, it's an interaction. We talk about the three qualities of existence, anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and, and not-self. But actually you can talk about them as the qualities of our experience, not just of existence, not just some objective Peter Jennings once said, Objectivity means different things to different people, <laughs> which means that objectivity is a subjective experience. There are certain feelings, notions, ideas we have that we think exist independent of us, they are objective. We believe our map. We believe our understanding. And, and you can understand how that would be a really important evolutionary advantage, you know, to believe. You don't have to dither about this brown spot that's getting bigger. Is that a lion or is that, you know, we, you, you believe it and you act. If you, if you engage in, you know, deep philosophical inquiry, You probably don't pass your genes on. We believe to be able to respond. We believe. So the delusion is in the believing our maps. We need our maps. We have to live by our maps. We can't do without them. How else will we get home? We also have maps about how to behave and how, to make, how we make ourselves happy. And they're practical tools. They're heuristic devices. They aren't accurate representations of what's going on. They're just, the Buddha said, within this fathom-long body, the whole universe, within our neurology, within our awareness, within what's happening so the middle path here is not to abandon our understanding but to recognize that it's just our understanding and that it's got to, it's practical we need to use it we will use it we'll rely on it we'll try to modify it make it better but it's sort of between believing the delusion and understanding how the delusion that the delusion. And that make the middle between the two. So we sort of, when, when Stephen Batchelor was working on, on his book Verses from the Center, which was a, a commentary and translation of uh, Nagarjuna's work on emptiness, he was considering using the word transparency as a, as a translation for shunyata. It's there, but you can sort of see through it. You recognize it's it's there. You use it, but you recognize that it's just practical. And so, when things happen that you didn't expect, well, what a surprise! <laughs> you know. But when things happen we don't the way we don't expect or don't want, we get cranky. Usually, you know, it's unpleasant. We don't. But I think well. What, what was I thinking <laughs> you know, I was thinking I was always going to get my way. I was thinking things were going to always go well. Where'd I get that idea? You know, fires won't come to me right view is 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 the understanding of dukkha, its conditioned nature. So that when we can spot our response to it, we know where it's going. So our response is in our intention. Right intention is often taught as renunciation. The the idea here is abandonment of dukkha. This is the task of abandoning uh, um, tanha, greed, hatred, and delusion. Letting go. It's the path of letting go. You know, letting go is we tell ourselves to let go a lot, and it's not a really, it doesn't help always. You know, it's like trying to root yourself on, got to be more enthusiastic. Yeah. Show more, be more enthusiastic. Love your neighbor. Let go, let go, let go. I remember Christopher Titton saying once, if you find yourself saying, let go, let go, let go, you've already missed the boat because really what's going on in the present moment is holding on, holding on, holding on. But abandoning, the, abandoning greed, hatred, and delusion means abandoning the objects, not the, what we want, what we don't want, our views about how things are. Not holding to them. Holding them lightly. Recognizing. A desire for a pleasant experience is going to show up. When they stick the menu in front of you, that creme brulee looks awfully good. You know, desire is going to show up. But sometimes desire shows up and it starts looking for an object. You know, you have a thumb through a catalog thinking, I know I want something. I just don't know what it is. <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, so there's the there's the path here it's very similar to to right effort right effort classically is you know the energy uh, of sustaining what's wholesome what doesn't enhance suffering and abandoning what's unwholesome you know, what advances and suppressing the unwholesome from arising it's the same there's Right intention includes renunciation and abandonment, but also the cult paths of cultivation. So there is the path of you know we cultivate the brahma vaharas, the divine states, equanimity and metta, friendliness, compassion and resonant joy. We we cultivate the paramis, the perfections of you know we we there's a notion here of a path we're we're trying to build, cultivate, build qualities. The middle path here is interesting for, for both right effort and right, right intention. Because if you're walking on a tightrope, for example, the rope is going like this and you're going like this and you're not thinking It's listening to the left, I'll move my arms this way to the right. It's just visceral. It's like riding a bike. You can't really describe... You can't describe how to ride... Can you tell somebody how to ride a bike in words? You can't even say how you do it. That balancing is the same way. There are some times when renunciation or abandonment is appropriate sometimes when what you want to do is to give a little bump to uh, friendliness, a little compassion, a little bit of abandonment. Rooting yourself on is not, well, I mean, it's probably better than nothing. It reflects that you have got a, a goal, but at the point where you understand that holding on is really painful and unpleasant, letting go just happens. You know, you're holding something, you want to keep it, and somebody says, you know, there's, there's poison on that. You just drop it right away. The understanding changes, and you see that the satisfaction that we think is going it's, to, it's delusional, it's, it's illusory. so right intention becomes implicit it's something we learn the way we learn to drive a car you know first th- first thing you do you don't you don't know <laughs> my granddaughter 15 and a half she showed up the day after her 15 and a half birthday with her learner's permit and said you know <laughs> but you know, at that moment, she, wh- where do you put the key and what do these dials mean? And it's just that now she can drive, you know, she can drive from Sacramento to San Francisco and not even notice Backerville, Fairfield, Vallejo, just, you know, like all the rest of us. And it becomes an implicit. So right intention really becomes our visceral response of not making things worse right speech right action right livelihood this is this, this is for me this is the fruit of all that we're engaged in here you know be able to live a life without dukkha speech action livelihood and if your idea is that the path is going somewhere well then you know we can it gets glossed often as don't kill, don't steal, uh, don't hurt anybody with sexual energy, don't lie and heaven forfend, don't have a drink. And then we're, then we're good to go. But if you see it as, as the life of speech action, speak, act, and assemble a life that doesn't make things worse for yourself and others, how do you do that? It's not rule-based, It's a middle path. It's not rule-based. I can give you examples of when lying is the only ethical thing to do. Nazis knock on the door and say, is Anne Frank here? You say, what do you mean by is? (laughs) Did that work for Bill Clinton? Not so much. Don't take what's not freely given. What about a gun from a child? Car keys from a drunk you know don't kill what if you saw Adam Lanza heading into that school with his guns and you had a weapon? Do you stop him? You know right speech, right action, right livelihood is the is the middle path between your intentions and the environment it's a it's it's negotiated every instant what's what is it at this moment that will not make things worse maybe you can maybe you can attenuate suffering maybe you can help but let's not make things worse if you can't keep from making things worse <laughs> well you know it's hard to think that you're making things better i don't think the buddha actually th- thought you know he It's not outside of our nature to want to do this, to want to make things. We're designed to want things pleasant. What the Buddha found is that our strategy, which is to chase after the ideas, the things we think will make us happy, and the things and make them go away that we think will not, he said, that's problematic. Works maybe once in a while, but long term, how are we doing? But he said, if you don't make things worse, if you don't add greed, hatred, and delusion into the mix, things automatically become better by the amount that they would have been worse. So it's, it's in accordance with our own, the way we're designed uh, to follow this, to cultivate this path, Samasati and Samasamadhi, right, mind, right mindfulness and right concentration. Achan Cha said meditation is like this pen, this side concentration, this side mindfulness. You don't get one without the other. You need some steadiness in order to actually be mindful, but you need to be mindful in order to be able to maintain the steadiness. You've got to notice when you've drifted. You know, when you drift it, you know you go to follow your breath and after three or four, maybe five or six, so you recognize that drift. So you could say it's middle in that way. But I think it's middle in a couple other ways too. So sama, samadhi, which is in, 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 um, interpreted as right concentration. Oh, you know that there's no word in Pali or Sanskrit for meditation. So it's really right, concentrate, right, right samasamadhi, and samasati. So the idea is not not too little, not too much. He uses the metaphor of the of the the harp or the lyre, where you want the strings tightened just the right amount, enough stability of mind. You don't need. To be able to access eighth jhana consistently in order to abandon dukkha, you just need to keep your attention steady long enough to notice what you 're doing. Samasati is sort of the same often right mindfulness is talked about in terms of the the four foundations we practice. we practice paying attention to our breathing or to our feeling tone to our mind states few aspects of the Dharma. But those feel to me like finger exercises. You know, you do the finger exercises to, on the piano to be able to. But really, the music of the Dharma is samasati, it's the mindfulness that enables us to abandon um, greed, hatred, and delusion, which means we want to watch, we want to be mindfully aware of our intention. Middle path. It's the, it's the engagement. It's monitoring the engagement between our experience and our reaction to it. Samasati, samasamadhi. The cultivation of the eightfold path is a way of living. You know, we cultivate it like we cultivate a seed and... A life grows that is, is less encumbered by dukkha, where we make things worse less and less. So in prison, I say, you know, shit happens, we usually make it worse, we don't have to, here's how. And the here's how is the middle path. It's not by adhering to one set of principles or another even knowing one thing or another. And so the cultivation of right view leads to the practice, leads to the recognition. When things don't go as we expect, (laughs) what was that thinking? Do we expect things to... Work out? Maybe. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. So I think what I'd like to do is to just check in with you guys and see how middle this feels. (laughs) Any thoughts or comments or complaints? Complaint is a great marker for dukkha. Any complaint. If you have a complaint justified or not, you know, please. I'm trying to integrate the idea of acceptance and letting go to
0: an experience. An experience I had recently in which after a colonoscopy, uh, it was suggested that my colon be removed. And... um, That was very startling for me because I considered myself healthy. Um, And so the place I went to uh, was just my mind uh, went to a place where there has to be an escape from this. There has to be a way out. And my mind is just thrashing about looking for the escape path. Mm -hmm. And at one point I said to myself, I think I need to just let go and accept and then down the road, uh, thanks to family members or in in the medical profession, etc., I got a second opinion, which was, no, this is not appropriate for you. So I'm listening to you, and I'm I'm trying to integrate what you're saying into when was it, it, it apparently was a good idea to for me in this instance to not let go and follow the first doctor's suggestion.
1: I have, a, I have an acquaintance in Sacramento who had a similar kind of experience. He went to the doctor with some headaches and the doctor said, oh, this doesn't, this doesn't look good. I'm thinking, you know, brain tumor. And what, what's the response? Remove your colon, you've got a brain tumor. What are you thinking? How's, how's that going? We live in our mind, in our in what Bob Dylan called our thought dreams. We live in our thought dreams. You know it turned out that uh, it was allergies, but that didn 't mean yeah that 's wow, but that doesn 't mean that the suffering in there wasn't wasn 't happening, and that suffering was all surrounded in our ideas. Nothing changed for for my friend, nothing changed for you, but the ideas all of a sudden, and a lot of the suffering in our in our life comes from our reactivity to our thought dreams, to the thoughts that we live in, to the way we've sliced and diced the world. It turns out sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. We get reactive over them anyway. Um, the The idea would be to recognize our own... You know, we're designed to want to address a life-threatening dangerous situation deal with it with some panic you know there's a there's a field of of uh, contemporary uh, psychology called terror management theory google it it's just fascinating and the idea is that a lot of our um, a lot of what we do in the world has to do with managing our recognition of our impermanence you know Terror is a useful, uh, emotional, useful in, you know, reaction when your life is on the line. It just marshals all your resources to that one purpose. Works for animals who don't have foreheads. <laughs> if you've got a forehead, you can imagine you know, your mortality. And there's there's a whole bunch of research where if the, you remind people of their mortality, their behavior changes. You know, so there's a lot of going on in our head, the thoughts, and just recognize that. Um, you know. Yeah. Uh,
2: Tony, I was reflecting on something you said in when your last Dharma talks, where you were in the prison system and you told a guy it is what it is and the guy went berserk on you yeah and you know, what's interesting is is also with this colon cancer di- diagnosis it is what it is until it isn't the the funny thing is like they use that term in the criminal justice system it is what it is but it is it, it I noticed in the criminal justice, it is what the judge says it is until another judge says something different. Or the parole board says something different. It is what it is until it isn't. And that's, that's it's a funny thing. I I just reflected on that.
1: It may be what it may be, but we have really just a guess. (laughs)
2: But I was always impressed with your story of being in the prison oh, system, that guy. and that guy was coming yeah. at you. He
1: was later. He was apologetic. He said, "It's a good thing I'm in this cage. I meet with guys in cages um, that think phone booth, big phone booth with bars and grills and plastic, and you know." Um, he said, "It's a good thing I'm in in this cage." He said, "Otherwise, you say something, I'll hurt you." I so you know, it was just pure reactivity. Yeah, please.
0: So, I'm going to say something that may sound very weird, but you said a couple of times if
1: people thought about this, we might not be, then they may not reproduce. Did I get you right? I'm saying if you're sitting out on the African savanna anguishing over some existential question, you're not going to be noticing the predators. uh, I'm I'm just saying if you're distracted by doubt, Okay, So then, then maybe so, what I was going to say doesn't oh, fit. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, no, I was just saying, if we don't doubt our understanding and we think we're right and we know what's going on, even if we reflect and say, yeah, I know this is just a best guess, but still we trust it and we get frustrated when, it, when things don't work the way we thought they were going to work and... I've always liked uh, Lily Tomlin as Trudy, saying that reality is really just a collective hunch. <laughs> you know, there's a th- there's a guy. Um, I think his name is Walker. He's a he's a uh, cognitive scientist at UC Irvine. He had a, there was a TED talk and he wrote an article which was titled "The Case Against Reality," and he basically th- this. Uh, I'll just take, this is, only take 30 seconds. He says, our relationship to the world is like our relationship to our computer screen. We see these little folders on the screen. They aren't really folders. But if we drag them to the trash, the data's gone. Because it's those folders represent stuff in the machine. You know? But we manage them with folders. We couldn't manage all the dots and dashes or whatever they are in there. Right? So we relate to the world the way we relate to our computer screen. It's not that it's wrong. It's just that it's not what we think. There are real consequences to dragging that folder to the trash. It's not that it's, you know... um, And it's the same with our experience of the world. We don't really know what's going on. We know how to get along. Until we don't. Anything else? Anybody else? Oh, goody. Middle Path, I will be back next week.